to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, January 30th, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers Series. In this talk, former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright discusses the history and current resurgence of fascism with Professor Philip Bobbitt. Well, I do think we have to admit that we've been friends a long time. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Uh, more than friends. I'm an ardent admirer of Madeleine Albright and have been for a long time. This is my idea of the way to spend an evening in Manhattan. The New York Historical Society, which I love, and Madeleine Albright, who I love and admire. It is a great, a great treat. But I'm going to go ahead and get to it. After the end of the Cold War, or perhaps a better construction might say the end of the war between communism, fascism, and parliamentarianism that started with the First World War. There was widespread euphoria in the West. Although it had been a near-run thing at times, liberal democracy had triumphed. How far away those days seem now. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright is going to discuss tonight what happened to liberal democracy, what is happening here at home, how the interplay between what happens here and world order works, and maybe most, uh, the most difficult question of all, what we can do about it, what we should be doing. Now let me start with a dedication to this book. You say, this book is dedicated to all who fight fascism in others and in themselves. Do each of us have an inner fascist? Um, I think we do in the following way, because part of the whole issue here is that fascism takes root when people do not have respect for each other um, and respect for their different ideas, and when you decide that your future depends on somebody else's not being good. Um, And I do think that there's a certain amount of that kind of trying to blame somebody else for whatever is wrong in your life. So I think we do have to push against that. This is the old uh, uh, Walt Kelly drawing in Pogo. Uh, I've met the enemy, and he is us. us. Still, I detect uh, behind this book another figure than the one in our mirrors, uh, the figure of Donald Trump. Uh, I agree with you that he's no fascist, but... What does it say about the United States that uh, such a person could get anywhere near the presidency, much less be elected? Well, let me, in terms of background, let me say I was going to write this book no matter who had gotten elected because I was beginning to sense that there were real issues in terms of how our democracy was functioning and very much the way you started your introduction in terms of what was happening after the euphoria of the end of the Cold War. I was born in Czechoslovakia, and so trying, in fact, to understand why that country had all of a sudden forgotten that Václav Havel had been president and what were the problems. And I'm chairman of the board of the National Democratic Institute, and 
uh, started by Ronald Reagan, who said that uh, democracies were not real good about defending themselves vis-a-vis -vis communism. And I thought that we had worked through our way through that. And yet, in fact, there really were a lot of divisions uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. So I was going to write that book anyway. I do think that, um, frankly, I don't know how he got elected. Uh, but the bottom line is I think that part of the problem is that people are looking for some kind of answers. And one of the issues that a lot of my book is historic in terms of how fascism started and where it's poking up now, and it's usually where there are some very difficult problems and there's some leader who says, I have answers, and they are simple answers, and I'm hardly ever wrong. And so I think that uh, there is part of what would have been happening anyway, and partially that... Um, there was this sense that something had to be done differently. I have made up my mind about the following thing, which is I'm trying desperately to understand uh, what goes on in the minds of people that we disagree with, because I don't like the word tolerance, because that's tolerate and put up with. Mm -hmm. I think we need to respect those who have different ideas and try to figure out why they would find answers somewhere that I might not. That seems like a good attitude for a, for a democracy, for a constitutional democracy. But let me push you on it just a little bit. The worship of uh, money in our culture, the cult of celebrity, the fixation on the wealthy, the contempt for sacrifice made for our country, the disdain for service to other people, credulousness and ignorance about our system of governing, imperviousness to well-established and reiterated facts, a hunger for scapegoats, a tolerance, as you say, for vulgarity and incivility. Am I supposed to tolerate this? Or should I say, uh, I've had it? Well, I've had it. But I think the bottom line is that I think that means that we have to participate more. Um, and by the way, we all know the saying, see something, say something. I have added to that, do something. Uh, and my to-do list has a, a lot to do with exactly what you've said, which is uh, to make clear that democracy is based on a free press, that it is absolutely essential that the press is not the enemy of the people, that we need to understand the... Um, our Constitution and the role of institutions generally, that we need to um, know that we cannot have leaders that think they're above the law. I think also, as the to-do list continues, is that we need to either run for office or persuade or support those that are and be very much a part of the political scene. And then the, that other point that I made about talking with those that um, one disagrees with to figure out what's going on. And then finally, I don't think there's ever been a book or a speech given that doesn't quote Robert Frost. So my <clears throat> quote that I like is, the older I get, the younger are my teachers. Um, and I do think that one of the other things now is to spend a lot of time with young people. You teach, I teach. Um, and I think kind of watching what those Parkland, the kids after the Parkland shooting did and in terms of town halls and all kinds of things. So we do need to do something. 
I think the problem that is really out there, without getting too uh, professorial, um, is the social contract is broken. Uh, people gave up their individual rights um, in order to have a state uh, protect them in some form or another in terms of whether it's um, literally protection or building roads or various things that need to be done. And in return, the, the people had a responsibility to participate and vote. And both parts of the social contract have been broken. And I think that what we have to do is try to figure out how to put it back together and answer those questions. And I do think, because um, we were talking, is that we are living in a very different era uh, type of situation than what you and I knew from working together um, in the 20th century. The 21st century is very different. Um, and um, I happen to believe that people and institutions kind of around age 70 need a little refurbishing. And so I think that <laughs> that is what needs to happen now. It's very difficult to leave the moorings you've had behind, particularly when they've served us as well as these have. But I take your point. We're in a new era. We have new challenges. Uh, and I don't see that the things I was complaining about are really a matter of the left or the right. But I associate fascism with the right. Your book seems to suggest that there can be uh, a Leninist fascist like uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, as well as the rightist fascist like Mussolini. Am I right about that? Yes. I mean, first of all, I, I say... By the way, we throw the term fascist around loosely. If there's somebody you disagree with, you call them a fascist. Um, and then um, if you... Uh, she gives the example in the book of, this could happen to me, what about children saying, if I ask him to brush his teeth, call yeah, me a fascist? Exactly. No. Or the kid that wants to drive and you don't want to let him, no. you're a fascist. So, I mean, it is something that people throw around. I do think that fa the reason that I can bring left and right or describe it, is it's not an ideology, it's a process. Um, and it's a method of gaining power and maintaining power. And the way that, that I have been, it's not easy to define, frankly, but what I chose was the following, is that um, there are divisions in society. And a authoritarian and somebody with uh, fascist tendencies will, in fact, identify with one group kind of a nativist aspect of this is my group. The problem is that it's not enough to just identify with that group. You have to uh, take action against the other group so that there are those not only that you disagree with but are responsible for everything, that are the problem, the scapegoats. And it's that division in society. And rather than working to find common ground to solve problems, a authoritarian, fascist-leaning person will in fact... Uh, exacerbate those differences. And that is what has gone on as I looked historically at what was going on. Then the other part that happens is that somebody that has a capability to uh, use propaganda to really uh, have a lot of rallies and get people stirred up in something as being member of a group uh, and really stirring them up through a lot of peculiar means in terms of getting everybody hysterical... And then the other part is this disrespect for institutions. And ultimately, I was trying to figure out uh, what is one of the really determinative aspects of being a fascist versus just being an authoritarian leader is violence, yes. uh, a bully with an army. And I think that 
The only real fascist that I have in the book is Kim, uh, Kim, Kim Il-sung, who really is somebody that I think has all the pieces of things in North Korea of being in complete control, of throwing people into camps, of terrifying them, and using force to keep them there. Uh, I think the others that I talk about, I describe a lot of the tendencies, uh, but I do think that um, I've been careful, I think, not to just throw the term around. You know, some people think the, the book is alarming. It is supposed to be alarming. That is the point of it. Well, would you talk about not just identifying with an ethnic or religious or cultural group, but also defining that group and your mission against some other group. I think, and I imagine many people here think, of the fascist philosopher Carl Schmitt. Carl Schmitt said the most essential element in politics is the friend-enemy distinction. You have to have an enemy to get your friends to rally around your political program. It's not just a cynical idea. It is, a, it is an evil idea because it means that you have to escalate the tyranny and violence against the enemy as a way of consolidating your power over your, over your friends. Now, in addition to talking about fascism, you often talk about undemocratic regimes and undemocratic leaders. But so many of the figures in this book are people who came to power by elections. You mentioned Erdogan in, uh, in Turkey, Putin in uh, Russia, Chavez in uh, Venezuela. These are all people who were elected and re-elected. It's worse than that. The thing that I didn't... Hadn't, I, by the way, uh, you learn a lot when you write a book, as you know. I think that what stunned me was that uh, Mussolini and Hitler came to power constitutionally. Absolutely. And I think the part, and, and I, that's why I think it's really worth talking about them a little bit more, which is that Something that is, a, is the petri dish for uh, fascism is discontent. And so for the Italians, they had fought on the side of the Allies in World War I and then didn't feel that they were recognized for what they had done. And there uh, was a little, lot of discontent. They couldn't keep any governments in office. And Mussolini had been kind of an outsider, a smart guy. He had a talent for rallying people and um, explaining himself well. Um, he wanted very much, he himself, uh, or it was attributed to him, just thought it would be worth draining the swamp. Um, and uh, I think that he attracted people because he had a positive, a message of action. His people that he disliked were those that had brought shame to Italy and, they, and really also marshalling a group of people do not like foreigners that had, in fact, um, denigrated Italia's role. What was interesting was King Emmanuel, who was weak, named him to take over. Yes. Uh, so he won power or got power constitutionally. With Hitler, um, there was just obvious discontent with the way the Germans had been treated at Versailles and uh, reparations and all kinds of things in the Weimar Republic that wasn't working and financial problems. Von Hindenburg, the uh, president, had named Hitler, started him as vice chancellor, and then moved him up. And basically, it was the same kind of thing. Now, what Hitler did uh, with even more menace was to find the scapegoats. And so 
that enemy aspect that you were talking about was something that was basic. He needed to find whose fault it was, and that's when he decided it was the Jews' fault. And um, so, therefore, there is nobody that compares with Hitler in terms of the Holocaust and the things that he did. But, in fact, it created that aspect. It always has to be somebody's fault. So when you talk about the modern leaders who have been all elected, all of them that you name, um, they had a simple answer of some kind for whatever the economic problems were particularly, but they have also found the scapegoat. Viktor Orban, by the way, what I find so interesting is I met him in the 80s. He was everybody's favorite dissident. Um, When I went there, uh, initially it was with the National Democratic Institute, Uh, he headed a party of young people. Fides was young people. It's still a party, but old people, since he's older, then it keeps going on. Um, But he decided that he would work off of the purity of the Hungarian nation. And also the Hungarians were dissatisfied as the way they were treated after World War I, so he had something to go on. In the 90s, I did a survey of all of Europe, um, and there was one of the questions that we asked was, do you think that a piece of your country is in the neighboring country? I don't remember all the statistics, but one I remember was that 80% Hungarians thought a piece of their country was in the neighboring country. So Orban, who, by the way, was educated at the expense of George Soros, uh, has, in fact, now operating off of this purity aspect and wanting lands to be returned to them. Erdogan, very interesting person. Turkey had been, I think, run by elitists in a number of different ways, and he appealed to uh, people that had been left out. He got elected fair and square by parts of Turkey that had been dismissed um, and by doing constituency services. And then all of a sudden he found another kind of messianic, not that's the wrong term, but a, a, a term in terms of thinking that he could lead. Chavez, same thing. So... These are people, there's something that's gone wrong in their country, and they provide some kind of simple answer and then operate off of propaganda and hatred of the other. Well, I want to touch on your phrase, something's gone wrong. If you go back to the elections you mentioned in 1930 and 1932 in Weimar, Germany, the striking figure isn't, I think, the votes that go to the Nazi party. Those are frightening, but they're never a majority. It's only when you combine the votes that the Nazis got with the votes votes that Bolshevik and communist parties got that you see that the anti-democratic, anti-Weimar group was a huge majority. Something was going wrong with the established constitutional order, whether it was the economy whether it was the humiliation after Versailles. Uh, I don't know uh, how long the list should be, but I can't help but think that when a constitutional forum, like a parliament or a congress, is in such gridlock that it can't even address, much less resolve the problems that preoccupy the public, they're apt to flee to these anti-democratic uh, fringes that eventually simply swamp the center. Are we in danger of something like that here? Well, I am concerned about that. I mean, I am a passionate centrist. Uh, and I really do think that part of the issue is trying to find 
common answers. And um, it is easy, actually, to run to the extreme, either on the right or the left. Um, and I am concerned about it. And I am. What bothers me an awful lot, and both you and I have worked in various parts of the government, and I must say that I enjoyed working um, on the Hill for Senator Muskie, um, and then coming to the White House for President Carter, and then President Clinton. And, um, and I love the whole concept of executive legislative relations and how they work, and, and how it's based on compromise. Um, and so when you decide that you're not going to compromise, I think you get yourself into a gridlock situation, and then people really feel that they have no faith in their government. By the way, I, I want to get back at something to answer earlier. Sure. I do think that there are a number of things that make this era different, and I've tried to kind of um, summarize it a little bit. I think there are two megatrends and their downsides. So the first megatrend is globalization. There's no question, and I think most of us have gained as a result of globalization of being able to uh, take advantage of many things that are going on in other parts of the world. The downside of it is that it's faceless, and people want to have an identity. I think we all want to know ethnic, linguistic, religious identity, and I think that's fine. I think we all want to know who we are, and, and in many ways it's patriotic. What happens, however, when my identity hates your identity, it becomes nationalism, and hyper-nationalism is very dangerous. And that is what we've seen in a number of places. And then it is exacerbated by people who want to say they're of a particular nationality. The second megatrend is technology. And again, we have all gained an incredible amount with technology. Um, and I love to always talk about the woman Kenyan farmer who no longer has to walk zillions of miles to pay her bills, uh, but can do it with a mobile phone. And it's changed her life because she can... Um, be with her family or get an education or start a business. That's the good part. The, the downside of it is that it has uh, totally uh, separated people's voices and everybody has their own echo chamber that they listen to. Makes it very hard to create political parties because everybody has their own views on things. Um, and um, I stole this line actually from Silicon Valley. It is a completely plagiarized line. But it explains things well. People are talking to their governments on 21st century technology. The governments listen to them on 20th century technology and provide 19th century responses. So there's no faith in institutions. And it's interesting. And the only ones in which there's faith are actually the lower level ones, mayors, city councils that are closer to the people or the town halls. And so then you do create a gridlock uh, that then is fueled even more by extremes on both sides. I think also to go back on something, Mussolini actually initially wanted to fight the Bolsheviks. But then they, and as you pointed out, what happened in, in Germany is true. The right and left uh, found common cause against the center, uh, and then that becomes very hard. I think the hard part that uh, is very hard, it is for me, I grew up in a very different era. It was an era that was created um, by international institutions that came into place after World War II, uh, with the United States in the background of all of them, uh, a way of looking at what was going on, democracy on the uh, sometimes defensive, but really on the rise with some rules. And at the moment, we're kind of free flow. I think it's a very, very difficult time. And what it requires 
is some very thoughtful approach to not get stuck in gridlock so that people have no faith in institutions. Uh, and then again, uh, if I might, Egypt is a very good example. People in the Arab Spring were pushed in to, uh, by social media to go to Tahrir Square. They get there. They don't have a clue what to do. Everybody's gotten news in their own way. Um, I'm the last one to say this, but elections there were held too soon. The Muslim Brotherhood was organized. The people in Tahrir Square were not. And everything was a mess. And so I made up this older guy who lives outside of Cairo and wants to come in in order to open his stall in the marketplace. And it's a mess. He can't get in there because of what's going on. He says, to hell with this. I want order. And all of a sudden, you have a military government. And so there is this kind of sense of not knowing where to go with this very different era that we're operating in. You have a passage that I think builds on this. I'd be interested to see if anyone uh, listens to this and thinks of Hannah Arendt. Uh, Secretary Albright writes, Fascist attitudes take hold when there are no social anchors, and the perception grows that everybody lies, steals, cares only about himself or herself, and a yearning develops for a strong leader to protect us against the other. <clears throat> that could come right out of the origins yeah. of totalitarianism. But then you said something I think Hannah Arendt would never say. You say, in fact, elitists pose a more lethal threat to freedom than populist. Why would you say that? Well, I'll uh, I tell you why, because I think populism has, is another one of those terms that's thrown around without really knowing what it means. And in some ways, um, it's... Uh, a term of uh, a derogatory term there he's a populist the truth is you actually need people for a democracy um, and to have the people participate in things um, and not to be made to feel by elitists uh, that they don't have a role in it and I so believe in democracy I, I and it goes back again to the social contract thing is that people have a, um, a responsibility as part of it but uh, and I say in the book that I would prefer to be called a populist than an elitist. Um, uh, and I, I think because... I don't see that happening, do you? <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. No, but, but I, I do think we need to be clearer about the fact that populism is not a bad thing. I mean, it, it's, it's part of what I said earlier on, that we just kind of throw around terms without thinking what they really mean. I teach constitutional laws, so I'm familiar with the sort of inflection points this country has gone through in the past. The, the founding, uh, the end of the 18th century, uh, based on a liberal tradition that we were creating. Then our refounding after the Civil War, in which our institutions changed dramatically. But our values, the values of the Declaration of Independence, probably were more greatly realized after the Civil War than than after the Continental Congress met. If we're at another one of these inflection points, if our duty is to take the values of the Constitution, the values of the Declaration of Independence, the values of the Emancipation Era, and craft new institutions to serve them the way we've done that in the past, where do we start? Do we start with... A new party, a new elections? Do we start with getting rid of the old guys through impeachment? How do you begin? Well, I, I actually um, 
I love teaching, and uh, I, I, I talk more about a decision-making process, but I always say people actually need to read the Constitution, <coughs> and the first article of the Constitution is about Congress mm-hmm. um, and the checks that they are supposed to uh, exert. Um, and I think that what I, I have gone up to the Hill a lot recently, um, and um, mainly because I keep arguing for the budget for the State Department, even if I'm not there, uh, and because I believe in diplomacy. But basically, I keep saying it's Article One time. And I think the, the first thing that has to happen is for members of Congress to understand that they are there for a reason. I have never understood why there were some people who ran for Congress in order to not do anything. Um, that is a group sure. of people that just kind of feel they shouldn't have anything particular um, that they stand for. But I do think that that's the first part. And so what I hope is that there um, is an increased activity on Article I. Um, by the way, what was interesting, I was asked recently, the Congressional Research Service was doing a retreat for the new members of Congress. There were about 70 bipartisan. I went there, um, and uh, people wore their name cards with their name and their state, but not their party. And since I hadn't memorized everybody's name, I didn't really know who was who. And there were great discussions and and kind of a sense that they wanted to do something more um, and work with each other. That, I think, is the first part. Um, And by the way, I I did mention, for instance, that um, I was chairman of the National Democratic Institute and and Egypt. So we had been in Egypt trying to talk to them about the elements of democracy. And I said, well, you have to build coalitions and compromise. And they said, you mean like you guys? You know, so we're not exactly a good example of anything at the moment. And I think that um, it is very important for this new Congress to try to figure out how to make the Constitution work. And I do think that the Constitution has a lot of flexibility in it that needs to be worked. So that is my answer, and I wouldn't give up. I also do think that we need to do more in terms of making sure that people do vote, can vote, uh, that there's not suppressed uh, voting, that the gerrymandering and all the various things where one thing leads to another. And it is our time, uh, people that... I I just have to say this. I am a naturalized American and a very grateful American. Um, And when we came to the United States, my father was a Czechoslovak diplomat. He defected and asked for political asylum. And he said he was nothing was better than to be a professor in a free country. But he also said that he was concerned about the fact that Americans... um, took democracy for granted. And for somebody that was born in Czechoslovakia and had to, um, and was the first generation of Czechoslovaks and, um, you know, who was so proud of his new country and then had to leave because the Nazis came and then had to leave because the communists came, it was a very important thing. And I do think we take it for granted. And, and so I have this, it's kind of words that don't fit together, but there is the resiliency of democracy as well as the fragility of democracy. And we're the ones that have to fix that. This love of uh, our country and our institutions comes through in this in this book. There's a passage I want to read you. It's a, it comes from the Charlie Chaplin film, The Great Dictator, when the Charlie Chaplin character, who is a, a barber, gets mixed up with the dictator, and the barber gives a speech to a Nuremberg-like audience. He says... 
To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The hate of men will pass, and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Liberty will never perish. And Secretary Albright writes, Chaplin's words are sentimental, maudlin, and naive. I cannot listen to them without wanting to cheer. I want to touch on just a couple of more points before we go to the questions. And I think someone is collecting the uh, questions from the audience. First point is, what Secretary Albright leaves us with at the end of the book, and I want to run through these and just ask your reaction to them. It sort of goes to the question I was raising about, so what do we do? She says we should ask these questions about our leaders. Do they cater to our prejudices by suggesting we treat people of race or creed different than ourselves as unworthy of dignity or respect? Do they nurture our anger and promise revenge? Do they encourage us to have contempt for our governing institutions and the electoral process with cries that the system is rigged? If defeated at the polls, will they accept the result or insist, without evidence, that they have really won? Do they seek to undermine our faith in the rule of law, an independent judiciary, and to professional press? The answer to these questions will not tell us whether a prospective leader is a fascist, but how we respond to their answers will tell us a lot about ourselves. Tell me, when you wrote that passage, what were you thinking about? Well, I, I was thinking about the fact that maybe we weren't asking the right questions uh, because we weren't getting the answers that we wanted. And I think that we need to think deeper and recognize the fact that um, we are populists, <laughs> that it, it, you need, we all need to be a part of this, and that we have to examine ourselves a little bit more in terms of are we asking the right questions, and, our, and the choice of leaders is ours. Um, and what I think is that we have not really um, been, um, I think, critical enough of understanding what makes a democracy. And by the way, I, I have gone back in so many different ways. First of all, again, to something that you had said earlier, what went wrong in Central and Eastern Europe after the Cold War um, when everybody thought that it would work? And I think we have not analyzed enough what it is that people want out of their societies and um, how they respond to the governments and what are the governments supposed to be. These are very basic questions that we have taken for granted and, and that democracy is hard work. Um, and it is uh, not kind of orderly all the time. And one of the things, you know, that people always, uh, when we were all in graduate school, the question was, what comes first, political development or economic development? They obviously go together because democracies have to deliver. People want to vote and eat. And so the bottom line is how and what needs to happen in the 21st century. So I... This is, this is a call to action. It really is. And, and as I said, you know, I'm often asked whether I'm an optimist or a pessimist. I'm an optimist who worries a lot. 
And so uh, <laughs> I think that basically that we do take things for granted. And so um, I, I've never kind of, I mean, I have been a political activist and I'm certainly a professor and I uh, think about, polit- I'm a political scientist. And I just think that it's, we need to examine more and ask those kinds of questions and ask them of ourselves and not just blame somebody else for what's going on. Well, then I have two uh, quotations for you. George Bernard Shaw said, a pessimist is someone who thinks everyone is, is as rotten as he is and he hates them for it. <laughs> but the one I really love is Leo Zilliard, the physicist some of you may recall. He said, I'm an optimist which means that I think the future is uncertain. Well, and I think that's true. But because it's uncertain, it means that those of our, that are activists have a role to play and that you can't just kind of sit back and, and complain all the time. And so, and with me, I have to tell you this. Um, I have now made clear when I was born, so everybody knows how old I am. Um, it took me a long time to get a voice, and I am now not going to be quiet. Well, I'd like to end there and get our questions, but I have one more point to, uh, to take up. You say in this book that problems become opportunities for fascists and for other anti-liberal insurgents when the center can't or it won't successfully confront the problems that preoccupy the public. The public has a right to have addressed Here in this country, these problems that the center has not addressed include immigration, inequality, financial vulnerability, fear. Why is it that in a country of such bounty and such opportunity, why is it that the center, the constitutional institutions that you and I both revere, why have they been unable to raise these issues and then deal with them? I I think that's the basic question. I mean, whether it's something that we are afraid to raise the questions or intellectually lazy or whatever, I do think that we have not, and thinking that things will change if we don't participate. And so I really don't believe that. I think that, and I also do think that most of us had the privilege of growing up at a time when things weren't this complicated and there were some rules and if you followed them, um, you know, you were able to do what you wanted and get a job, et cetera. I think that something that we did not recognize was what the changes in technology have done to affect our lives. Um, And uh, when I I teach, I also have a bunch of Madeline's verities. And one of them is that um, the unintended consequences of decisions and that people... Um, make decisions on the basis of the information they have at the time and don't think forward enough and don't think about the issues. And I think we did not accept the changes that came about as a result of technology, and they have only begun. I mean, in, in so many ways, every day there's something new. I now have Alexa that I tell her to turn on the radio. Uh, God knows what else she does. Uh, but um, But... Basically, you know, artificial intelligence and all kinds of things that are going to have more and more of an effect on our lives. And I think it behooves us to deal with with these issues. And and I think we can't be intellectually 
um, or uh, politically lazy. And the center, instead of, I know there are people who criticize centrists. You actually need the center. Um, and Yates and various people have said, what happens if the center so doesn't hold? And so I think um, I am, an, as I said, an ardent centrist. Then let's go to these uh, questions. Uh, do you believe, someone has uh, asked, that leaders of the Republican Party will eventually part ways with President Trump? And if so, what might be the catalyst? Well, I keep waiting for this moment. <laughs> uh, and, um, and let me just say uh, the following. I believe in bipartisanship, and I proved it by being friends with Jesse Helms. Um, but I do think that, and I believe in a two-party system. And I, I do have a number of Republican friends, and I think that they, many of them don't know what to do. Uh, but I hope that the time is coming. Um, I'm sorry that a couple of them actually left the Senate, like Jeff Flake and Bob Corker. Um, but I, I think, and that recently there was a letter that some Republicans had started to put out in terms of things that they were worried about. Um, and so I think, um, it, I don't know what will make it happen, but I do hope it happens and because I want to see Article One work. Uh, and I also... I mean, this is going to be the longest election period in the history of the world, and it has begun. And, and I, I think that people need to look inside their souls and figure out what this country is about. To what extent, you're asked, do you think social media has abetted or perhaps combated the rise of fascism in the 21st century? I think I have thought about this a lot in terms of what has been the role of the media in all of this? By the way, um, when I was a real academic, I wrote my um, dissertation on the role of the press in political change. And I actually wrote about Czechoslovakia, but I've always been interested in the role of, political, of the press. And I think in many ways, social media uh, was in some ways complicit with what has gone on because it operates on addiction of... Uh, basically something new happening all the time, which means that what you have to do, uh, and this is hard, is to listen to things you disagree with um, and to try to, how you find enough, you know, I, I do believe there is such a thing as truth, but what you have to do is to compare and try to figure out what is really going on. And social media also, I think there's been a real question that's come up there now in terms of what responsibilities are in terms of what is put on social media. Um, and uh, it would be good if some of our senators actually understood what it's about so that when Zuckerberg comes up there, they can ask, ask questions. But I, I also do think that we all have a responsibility. So, for instance, everybody here should be really glad they live here and not in Washington, D.C., where I drive and listen to right-wing radio. Uh, and... There are a lot of hand gestures and things, and someday I will be arrested. But, <laughs> but I do think it's important. I thought I was the only one who did no, that. No, I mean, it's, you know. Uh, but I think it's important to listen to, to that and try to figure out what has happened. But the hard part is um, the, the, uh, the way that I think we are addicted to something constantly happening. And we are, we are empowering a lot of social media, and the social media is empowering a rather peculiar environment. This uh, member of the audience asked, 
The Congress may become even more dysfunctional and public disgust may grow. If we fell into a recession or a depression, is a military-led coup possible in this country? Um, I, I do not think it is possible in this country. I, I have the highest respect for our military and, and the way that they've operated, and I have... Um, what I, what I think is rather peculiar that happened is we believe in civilian control over the military. I always have. However, I was very happy when General Mattis was at the Defense Department. Um, and I do think that, um, no, but I do... But he was in a civilian role. But, absolutely, no. But I do think that, um, I do not think there can be a military coup. But I do think the following thing is that, um, I think the again that the members of Congress need to understand what they're there for. And so um, this is why I'm spending a lot of time there with Democrats and Republicans, uh, because uh, I have to tell you, the part, uh, just to go back on something, I teach this course, and I say foreign policy is just trying to get some country to do what you want. That's all it is. So what are the tools? And even though we're the most powerful country in the world, there are not a lot of tools in the toolbox. But the tools need to be activated by Congress. The uh, first uh, article of the Constitution gives them that power, and they have to look at it that way. They shouldn't cede it. Um, And gridlock is horrible, and what we've just seen is terrible. And by the way, it's practically impossible to travel abroad and explain why the United States government is shut down. Uh, And the part that has happened is as a result of that, the United States is AWOL abroad. Um, In one of your questions, you asked about immigration. Um, I found, I went to a conference in Marrakesh in December. There was a big conference on immigration, and I had been asked to speak by Louise Arbor, who's a Canadian. Sure. Um, and um, then I look, and the American chair is empty. There was, and the Russians and Chinese were there. We were not. The U.S. is AWOL. And I think that in order for us to play our role internationally and protect our national interest. And, and I do think every country has a right to an immigration policy, but one of the things that Congress could actually do is pass a comprehensive immigration bill that took care of various rules and laws. And, by, and I do have to say this, uh, is um, I am a naturalized American, and the thing that I love to do is to give people their naturalization certificates. And the first time I did it was on July 4th, 2000, at Monticello. And I kind of figured since I had Thomas Jefferson's job, I could do that. And so I hand this man his naturalization certificate, and he walks away, and he says, can you believe I'm a refugee, and I just got my naturalization certificate from the Secretary of State? And I went up to him, and I said, can you believe that a refugee is Secretary of State? And that is why I'm such a grateful American. You remind me of our dear friend Barbara Jordan and, uh, and my regret that uh, had she not died so prematurely, the Jordan Commission might have really addressed these problems yeah. because she had the sort of moral stature that uh, could have, uh, I think, united us in a solution. I love hearing this about Article One because the first day of my constitutional law class is I hand out a little paper constitution And I ask a student, what's the most powerful branch of government? 
And I get various answers. And I said, that's too complicated. Count the pages. Because Article I takes up this much of the Constitution. That's the Congress. Article II, the presidency, takes up this much. And the courts, which my law students are fixated on, only takes up that much. But because it's not, uh, it's not so easy to see who's in control, it's not as glamorous as the White House, it doesn't really appeal to coverage by the media, I think sometimes not only we forget it, sometimes I think they forget it. Well, they do, and I, and I really do think that um, the part of the problem is the way that the Constitution is written on national security policy. It's an invitation to struggle. And it does require um, some way of cooperation between the executive and, and uh, legislative branch. It's fascinating to follow. I, I mean, my job was to do congressional relations, so I, I love doing it. But it's, it's interesting because it's, it's something that is flexible enough, depending upon leaders talking to each other, which is why there's actually nothing wrong. And in, in compromise is not a four-letter word. And so I think that that is one of the things of trying to see what the other is about. Um, and the other part that I have seen a lot is sometimes people actually move away from the promises they made in the campaign because they realize that they're undoable. That is what I wish was going on now. And we have just a few minutes. I'm going to ask you a very complicated question here, but I think the audience would love to, an answer from you. The question wants you to comment on your involvement in the resolution, the successful resolution, I should add, of the war in Bosnia. And also, where do you see the future of Bosnia going? You know, I was, uh, uh, let me explain this, and thanks for the way it was asked. Uh, sometimes, after I've been introduced at length, I will say thank you very much for telling everybody who I am, because not everybody always knows. So not long ago, I was coming back from China, and Chicago was the first port of entry, and I put my stuff down uh, on the conveyor belt, uh, and the lady behind me said, so where'd you get all those screw-top bottles? And I said, well, I got them at the container store. And then I'm going through the uh, magnetometer, and the TSA guard looks at me, and he says, oh, my God, it's you. Uh, I'm from Bosnia, and we all love you in Bosnia, and if it weren't for you, there wouldn't be a Bosnia. And you're always welcome in Bosnia. And I have my picture taken with you. So we have our picture taken. And the line gets all screwed up. And I go back. <laughs> and the lady of the screw-top bottle says, so what exactly happened here? I said, well, I used to be Secretary of State. And she said, of Bosnia? <laughs> so, uh, uh, so I do think that uh, one of the, the crazy parts in my life is um, so much of it is accidental. And my father was the Czechoslovak ambassador to Yugoslavia. Oh, great. Yeah. And so I actually uh, understood something about the country, and I understand the language. And so the fact that all of a sudden it was one of the big problems that President Clinton had to deal with initially. And the thing that happened was, because I was ambassador at the UN, and President Clinton, uh, as governor, had said he wanted to do something about Bosnia. And then... The problem was it was the economy stupid and gays in the military, and it was kind of slow in coming about. And people came up to me, and they said, you know, why aren't you people doing something? These were the other members of the United Nations. And we had a principles committee meeting, and I'd argue for us doing something in Bosnia. But this is one of the things that did happen. General Powell uh, at that stage was still general, uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and 
we were all new, and he was a carryover, and he would come into meetings, big, handsome man, um, you know, in uniform, medals from here to here, and I was a mere mortal female civilian, uh, saying we needed to use force in Bosnia, and he didn't want to do it. And so um, he left, and we then, General Shalikashvili did want to do something, and we were able to use force, and it worked. So what happened was um, General Powell, all of a sudden I get a call from um, a journalist saying, what do you think that, about what General Powell wrote about you in his book? And I said, what did he say? He said, well, Ambassador Albright practically gave me an aneurysm uh, uh, <laughs> by suggesting that our soldiers were toy soldiers and that he had to patiently explain to her um, that they weren't. So I called him up and I said, Colin, patiently? And he said, yes, you didn't understand anything. And so um, I, he gave me his book, and he write, wrote with love, admiration, et cetera, patiently, colon. And so then I wrote him a note back, love, admiration, et cetera, forcefully, Madeline. So, <laughs> but I, the, the lesson that I learned, and it's one that is there now, is we need to learn to how to use the tools that are in that toolbox and what order you use them in. Force is not my favorite, you know, uh, um, tool, but there are times one has to use it or threaten it. I prefer diplomacy, but I do think that what has happened is that we are not using our tools well. And by the way, what I think, and I'm very worried about this, Putin is playing a weak hand very well, and we are playing a strong hand poorly. Our time is really... uh... Is really up, but this question is just too good to leave on the table. So I'll make this the last one. A student asked for any advice, sorry, a teacher asked for any advice for a high school U.S. history teacher trying to teach about the effectiveness of government in a time when our government feels so very far away. I do think that that is what we have to explain is that in many ways, people need to understand what the role of government is. Um, and what there's so many things that bothered me about the shutdown, but I think that we can't operate without a government. The government is, is the servant of the people. I think that part of the thing that has happened is there's not enough civics taught in high schools anymore and to understand <laughs> the role of government. And, and to understand that it goes back to we are the government. We choose the government. Um, and we have to push the government. And we need a free press to help us do that because we can't be the ones that always ask the questions. I also do think that um, to the, you know, there are people who criticize the members of Congress for going home a lot. I think it's important. They need to talk to the people um, and have that kind of a relationship. And the difference between an authoritarian government, and a democratic one is the interaction between the two. Because even though the authoritarian governments might have gotten elected, they forget it the minute they get there. Uh, And they then use the people to justify terrible policies. And so I do hope that the high school teachers um, and then later college, that people talk about government. It is, and taxes are what you pay in order to live in a civilized system. And so I think that we need to understand that and what we provide. And so I do believe in the government, and it can't give 
19th century responses. It has to do 21st century job. Madam Secretary, thank you. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.